invite you. Uh, you already have your hand out, I think, so you would know uh, that we are headed to Matthew 10 this morning. Matthew 10, um, we're going to resume where we left off uh, three weeks ago now, actually. Um, so I think this will be the fourth sermon out of chapter 10, um, and what should probably end up being five. So Lord willing, next week uh, we'll cover the last nine verses of, of the chapter. Um, because it has been three weeks, and I know I've done this each time, um, but each time we've been in this chapter, I kind of keep doing a little bit of a review, and so I'm going to try to do one very briefly. Um, most of you have, have been with us during that, but um, because it's been a few weeks, it's kind of fresh on my mind because I've been reading it, um, but I would not expect that to be fresh on your mind. Chapter 9, if you'll remember, finished with a summary statement. So here's where we're at, chapter 10. This is the second great discourse in the book of Matthew that Jesus speaks. We know the Sermon on the Mount, three large chapters. We spent months and months in those three chapters. This is the second great discourse, but this one is particularly targeted at Jesus' apostles, and we could even say it obviously expands out to his ambassadors, his representatives. So again, chapter 9 finished with a summary statement that Jesus was going throughout Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. And all three of those aspects of his ministry were so unique and powerful that they drew large crowds. Everywhere he went, he didn't take long. Large crowds began to gather. We've never heard anyone teach like that, preach like that, and people don't heal like he is doing. And I mean, all kinds of diseases and afflictions. At one point, the crowds are not only gathering, they're coming with the Lord. And so it begins to affect Jesus physically. Literally in his stomach, he feels compassion. To the point that he turns and asks his close followers who are following him now town to town. And he says that the harvest, the spiritual harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's doing all the work. The laborers are few, therefore... He tells them, you need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. And apparently, Jesus does what he tells them to do because Luke says he goes on a mountain, spends all night in prayer, and that next day, after praying all night, he comes down, and that's where chapter 10 picks up. He chooses 12 men, you, you, not, 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 not that one, and that one, 12 men. He empowers them with his power. They now have the power to heal, to cast out demons, and apparently, because what he says in chapter 10, they have the ability to raise the dead when, when it's within the will of God. And so he, in verses 1 through 4, he names, the, Matthew names the 12 apostles. Verses 5 through 15, Jesus gives that first group of 12, as he's getting ready to send them out, unique instructions to them. I'm not going to re-preach that portion of Scripture. They had very unique things that we learned principles from for our day and age. Three weeks ago, we looked at verses 16 to 23. And in that, so here I'm now getting ready to read our passage this morning. Do you remember what Jesus predicted? So it's going beyond just the mission of the 12 on their short-term mission trip. Verses 16 to 23, and really through the rest of chapter, of chapter 10 has expanded beyond their short-term mission trip to all Christians who are being sent out for the last 2,000 and who knows for how much longer that we're being sent out. Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep among the wolves. 
And we said it is bad enough when spiritual wolves come into the gathering of Christians. That's dangerous. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a unique danger when he sends his people out among the spiritual wolves. You are going to be in danger. And so that's what he's predicting, that persecution is going to come to certain people. Who are these people? So a little bit of recap, and then we're going to read verses 24 to 33. He's predicting that persecution will come particularly, I offered three weeks ago, to those Christians who are evangelistic and those Christians who take part in pioneer missions. That means they open their mouth and they try to evangelize and, and win converts and make disciples and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And so they're going out using their words. Again, evangelism is telling those who are in our sphere right where we live, but pioneer missions is going where the gospel has not been taken. If you do that, you and I and millions of Christians for the last 2,000 years have and will experience persecution. Last thing I want to say on the verses that we've already looked at. Jesus names six kinds of persecution. That's not all. That's not the only kinds of persecution, but he names six. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to read. As I say these, do not let them just roll in your ear and out as mere words. Think about this. Jesus says you will be hated if you're evangelistic, and if you live a life like his, and if you're evangelistic, and if you take part in pioneer missions, which obviously the 12 did, you will be hated. You could be imprisoned. You could be flogged, which means literally beaten with a whip. He says you could be rejected by your family, like literally turned over to the authorities by your family. It could get so bad you have to leave your home and your hometown to escape persecution. And it could get even so bad and has literally millions of Christians in the last 2,000 years who have been evangelistic and taken part in pioneer missions and live a life like Christ have experienced death and martyrdom because of those things. So those were six that he named. And with that in mind, let's now look at verses 24, kind of with this attitude of what's going to cause this persecution. We've already hit on it, but now Christ dives right in verse 24. Here's our text. A disciple, so the continuing the discourse, Jesus says to his disciples, a disciple is not above his teacher. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Guys, I got to tell you, I've read that many, many times devotionally, heard it referred to. I'll just go ahead and tip my hand. I thought when I, I've now read this probably nearly 40 times in preparation for today, that verse, I really thought I was going to find some new, deep, hidden meaning in that verse. Uh, honestly, the power is in the simplicity of the statement. So I'm not going to try to over-preach it, over-teach it, look for something hidden. Let's keep it real simple. Let's read it again. Real simple. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Watch my fingers. Here's a disciple, and here's his teacher. A disciple is not above the teacher. In fact, the disciple is not even equal on the same level. A disciple is under the teacher. Here's a servant, and here's his master. A servant's not over the master. A servant's not equal to a master. A servant is under the master. Real simple. They know who he's talking about. They know that he's the master and he's the teacher. They're the disciples and they're the servants. Verse 25. He says, it is enough for the disciple, it's enough in his thinking, to be like his teacher. Now, that's my goal, is to be like his teacher. 
And he says, the servant, not here, not here. Here's the servant. It's enough for the servant to be like his master. Enough for the disciple to be like the the teacher. Enough for the servant to be like the master. That's sufficient. That's the goal. So Jesus is saying, that's what your aim is if you're following me as my disciple. And so here's what he's saying. In that relationship, you want to be like me? Well, then you're going to get what I get. You're going to be treated how I'm treated. Keeping it very simple. And then he says, if they have called the master of the house, again, you have disciple under the teacher and servant under the master. So here's his thought. If they have, by the way, they have, called the master of the house, Beelzebul. Beelzebul was an old Canaanite false god, an idol that the Jews referred to as the Lord of the, of the flies. And they likened it to being the Lord of the demons. So who's the leader in the Lord of the flies, Lord of the demons? None other than Satan himself. And so the Jews would use this as a code word, a name, a title for Satan himself. Back up to verse 25 in the middle again. Jesus says, If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So your goal is to be like me. This is what they're saying about me. So you should expect to be treated like me. Verse 26. So it's coming. Grace for you hear this this morning. It's coming. So, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed. He's not saying nothing's covered. He's saying nothing is currently covered that will not in time be revealed. Or nothing is hidden that will not be known. There are hidden things. There are covered things but they will not always be hidden and covered. They will be revealed and known. And so Christ follows that. What, he's again talking to his ambassadors, his apostles, his messengers through the ages. What I tell you in the dark, what I tell you in the dark place, the isolated place, the out of the way place, the late at night place, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, What you hear whispered, in other words, Christ is saying, whether you have heard me whisper, you will hear me whisper, or after I'm gone, my Holy Spirit or God the Father whispers to you. What you hear whispered, proclaim the idea of loudly preach, loudly declare on the housetops. Verse 28, you say, I thought he already said this second time. And do not fear those who kill the body. So wait a minute, you're saying they can kill... Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Boy, I hope everybody at Graceview is Bible-educated enough to know who that is speaking of and who that's not speaking of, right? Some people read that, oh, right, yeah, we need to fear that, that really bad person who can destroy people's bodies and souls. No, 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 there's only one person who can destroy body and soul, and he's not an evil person. And we'll make it clear who that one person is. Before I read verse 29, would you, and I don't know how it falls on the screen, uh, but if you have your Bible open, would you just glance down very quickly to verse 31? We're going to read 29, but 29, 30, 31 go together. Do you see verse 31? Fear not, therefore. I'm sensing a theme, right? Have you picked it up already? 
I know I have an advantage. I've read this probably 40 times now. Uh, but like, there's definitely a theme here. Verse 31, fear not, therefore. Now back up to verse 29. Here's Jesus talking, continuing. Are not, so he's going to build to that statement. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And apparently they were. He's telling his disciples, his apostles. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So he's talking about two, and then he says, and not one of them. So he went from talking about two, now he's talking about one. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Not one of them. Hey, let's get some theology here. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from our father. So he's talking about sparrows, but then he says, but... Even the hairs of your head. He's not talking about sparrows anymore. Even the hairs. They can't fall to the ground apart from the Father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. They're valuable you're more valuable than many. One of them is valuable. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And in verse 32, 33 goes together. So, everyone, Jesus is talking, everyone who acknowledges me before men, this is publicly, everyone who acknowledges, sides with, aligns with, identifies with, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. He's talking about the future judgment. You acknowledge me here, I will acknowledge you there. But, flip side of that, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Two main points this morning. Number one, going back to verse 24 and 25, we find... Again, like we saw in the previous verses 16 to 23, what causes persecution? Persecution is caused because a person is being like Jesus. Persecution is caused by being like Jesus. Verse 24 again. Again, we're not looking for some deep hidden meaning. We're just going to keep it really simple here. We'll be brief on point number one. A disciple is not above his teacher or equal to the teacher. He is obviously under a teacher, nor a servant above his master. Guys, can I make a quick, quick point? Right out of the gate, we need to make an understanding that what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about disciples and servants. That's what he's talking about, this persecution. And that's who his instruction is to. Persecution is coming to who? His disciples and his servants. Who is he not talking about? He's not talking about secret Christians. People who have in their mind that, yes, I've put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just don't really tell people about it. You don't have to worry about persecution because why in the world would you be persecuted? Because nobody knows you're a Christian. And the only way they'll ever find out that you're a Christian is if your life changes to such a degree and you become like the Lord Jesus Christ and then persecution will come. But it will entail you opening your mouth. He's talking about disciples and servants. Why is this important? Because persecution comes to disciples who've made it a point. Here's, my, here's a disciple. Lord, I am leaving my old life. And I am literally going to follow you. And 
I believe you have the ways of life. I want to learn your doctrine, your beliefs, your philosophy. I want to learn all your teachings, but I don't want to just want to know it here. I want to implement it into my life. And I want to become just like you. And a servant also has this attitude. What does a servant do? My task in life is to carry out your plans. That's the people the Lord is talking about. Watch this. Christ is saying that when he's here as teacher and master, and we're here as disciple and servant, that here's two, two things. Watch. There is temporal danger in this position. It's dangerous. But there is eternal safety in this position. I thought about it this way. It's as though Christ is telling them and us, if you truly follow me, if you truly learn from me, if you obey me, become like me, if you advance my work, then what he's saying is, then expect to be treated just like I am treated. Do not expect to be treated better than I am treated. Verse 25 in the middle, again, if they have called. So you're going to get, if you become like me, like a true disciple, and you really are carrying out my work like a servant, then you're going to be treated like me. So here's what he says in the middle of verse 25. If, and the word if there does not mean hypothetically if this were to happen, it's, the, it's really the use of the word, what, how can I replace that? Somebody tell me. It starts with an S. I heard it. Since. Look at that. Since they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, what Christ is saying is since they are already calling me the Lord of the flies, they're calling me Satan, then what do you think is going to happen to you guys? If they're calling me the master, Satan, what will they call you as you become like me and you go out and literally do my work? I am multiplying myself among the people here in Galilee and among the nations in the last 2,000 years. I thought about this. Jesus' teaching, perfect, perfect, perfect. My teaching, not perfect. His life, Perfect. My life, definitely not perfect. If he lived a perfect life and had perfect teaching, and yet he was rejected, despised, hated, literally scourged, called Satan, and eventually crucified, why would I fool myself into thinking, if I live like Jesus, this world is just going to love me? You're dreaming. Guys, we can actually make a conclusion. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. To never experience opposition in our Christian life must mean that we are not manifesting Jesus in our life. That's what I deduce from this. The Lord's saying, if you become my disciple and you are my servant, then count on it. You will receive the same kind of hatred and being despised and being persecuted as I have received. These guys don't know it yet, but the Lord is going to be crucified and 11 of them, I'm sorry, 10 out of these 11 will also die a martyr's death. Number two. And so this is our second point, but obviously you see by your handout, this second point, verses 26 to 33, has several parts to it. So we'll need to spend a little time in the second point this morning. Number two. I'm going to, I think one way to look at this is what I'm going to call additional responses to persecution. So as Jesus is teaching us and by the way, three weeks ago I said, guys, there's two ways we can listen to, to a sermon like this and read a passage like this. We can look at this hypothetically. Okay, I know some Christians get persecuted. I've read 
Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I hear some things every now and then what's going on over in China and, and Pakistan and Morocco and Indonesia and different places like that. I, I, I hear, hear those things, but I don't know that they really apply. So you can listen hypothetically and theoretically, or you can listen as though this applies to me. I need to know how to respond. So, Jeff, why are you calling this additional responses to persecution? Here's why. Three weeks ago, when we looked at verses 16 to 23, Jesus actually gave us five proper responses to persecution. I can't re-preach that message, but I'm going to just highlight them. Here were the five proper. As persecution comes in all of its various forms, what should we do? Number one, Christ says, be wise. Everybody listen. Be wise. Be smart. Be cunning. Be shrewd. Like a serpent. Serpents have a lot of negative things about them. They're filled with animosity. And they, they, don't, they don't want to do nice things for their enemies, right? Or their prey. But they are shrewd and they are smart and they're very cunning. Christ says, because I'm sending you out as sheep amidst wolves, they're dangerous. And you're, you're kind of going out there, in, in an essence, defenseless. So be wise. Christians, don't stir up persecution by being obnoxious. There's enough offensiveness in the gospel without us being offensive in our mannerism and our delivery. So don't be offensive. He says, be wise. Second, he says, be innocent. The good thing about a dove is it's innocent. It has no malice or animosity like the snake. The bad thing about a dove is it doesn't have a lot of cunning and smarts and wisdom. So be wise like the serpent and be innocent as dove. In other words, when you are persecuted, be sure you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Be sure that when you are speaking the truth, you're speaking the truth in love and not to win an argument and not to beat someone down and speaking the truth out of hatred. Be innocent. He says, endure to the end. Number four, he says, flee if need be. As the Lord leads you, flee from persecution. And then the fifth thing he taught us is when you are persecuted and you're arrested and you're brought to a position where you're going to have to declare your faith and defend your faith and perhaps even in front of kings and governors, he says, don't worry and be anxious about what you're going to say. Literally, here's the response to persecution. In that moment, rely on the Holy Spirit. Give yourself over to the Holy Spirit. Father, I need you through your Holy Spirit. You do the talking. And so rely upon that. Now we come to verses 26 to 33. And I find in this text three more responses to persecution. So again, don't listen theoretically. Let's make up our mind. I want to be wise. I want to be innocent. I'm going to endure. I will flee when the Lord leads. And I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit to give me the words. And then a sixth response, our first one this week is... Do not fear mankind. Do not fear. So back before COVID-19 hit and we were doing a Wednesday night Bible study, many of you will remember that we were learning how to study a passage of Scripture. One of the things we learned is that when, when you read a text, read it over and over and over, read it slowly and start noticing, are any words repeated? Are any ideas repeated? So you see on your handout, this idea of not fearing, Jesus says it three times in just a very few verses. So let that sink in. This tells me, Jeff, this is probably the main point of today's text. I can't guarantee it's the main point, but I don't know that anything is above this. If something is said by the Lord three times in just ten verses, it's one of the main points. Three times the Lord says, do not fear. Look at verse 26 for the first one. So have no fear of them. I'm 50 years old. I've mentioned that a few times recently. And I've recently thought about this. 
I can't really speak for the 70s. Some of you are older than I am. Some of you are about the same age. And see if this rings true. I believe in the last 40 years, because I can remember the 80s, I believe in the last 40 years our country has shifted among three ways of thinking or three levels of acceptance of things. I think back in 1980, and I might be wrong here. I wouldn't die for this. I I grew up in the Bible Belt, and I went to a Christian school, and I went to church, and so my numbers might be skewed. But when I was living in the 80s, I believe that there was an absolute, a majority. Let me word it this way. There was a majority philosophy, not everybody, but I believe the majority of Americans had a belief that the Bible was a source of truth. That's what I experienced. That was my perception. That's what I believe. I still do. And I know it is. But in the 80s, there was this belief among most people, a few exceptions, most people, oh, yes, the Bible is a source of truth. In fact, many people back then, and some of you would say that's absolute, the way it was, they would say that the Bible was a source of absolute truth. I mean, it settled arguments. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that everybody knew the Bible, but if someone knew the Bible more than someone else, and they're over here philosophizing, if someone could say, well, Jesus says, or the Bible says, and they start quoting, oh, okay, well, I didn't know the Bible. It would like settle discussions. It was looked at as a source of truth, and among many people, an absolute source of truth. But then things shifted. I think pretty much in the 90s, we moved into relativism. And relativism came along, and it's horrible, and it says, yeah, you believe that, But those people believe that, and these people believe that, and these people believe that. And so here's what needs to happen. Everybody just needs to kind of live their own way, have your own beliefs, and let everybody else have their beliefs. And so we move from the Bible as a source of truth to relativism. Don't judge each other. There can be lots of truths. And then we've now, I'm proposing what I'm seeing happening literally in the last few months is what I would call a new absolutism. And the new absolutism that is coming over our land is this. It's the bully mob that says, not only do we not disagree with what the Bible calls sin and lifestyles that the Bible calls sin, they're actually bullying everybody on social media and they're coming after your jobs if you say otherwise. Now they're saying you have to believe like us in the things that the Bible says is sin is actually okay. It is not sin. What the world has believed, what Western culture has called sin because of the Bible for 2,000 years, that is no longer true. In fact, if you say that, you're a hate monger and you need to lose your job. And if they don't take your job, we're going to pressure people who buy your goods and services until the bosses make you lose your job because we saw what you posted one time. You believe the Bible. That's the new bully, riotous, noisy mob that is the new absolute. You have to agree with us. Well, I'm not going to play along. And I know that when we don't play along, persecution is coming. I was sharing with Tim this morning. Many of you already know this. The governor of Nevada has put a restriction that that churches can only have 50 people attending. doesn't matter how big the church is. Church could hold 2,000 people. They can only have 50 people there. But the casinos can have 50% capacity. What's worse than that, not just the governor of Nevada, is that our Supreme Court, with a five to four ruling, upheld such a law that the governor of Nevada is trying to impose out there. Let that sink in. Now, you know why that's happening, right? You and I know why that. How does Nevada make a lot of its money? Yeah, okay. We're not going to touch the, the, the gambling. 
Well, what about all those six people sitting so close around the roulette table and around the card? That doesn't matter. You have 2,000 people that you could hold in your auditorium, but you can only have 50. And the Supreme Court, it's, it's coming. No, 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 that's, that's a lie. It's here. Persecution is here. It is starting. We're not dying yet, but guys, it's coming. Here's what Christ says. Do not fear. Do not fear. Look at verse 26. Have no fear of them. Why? Now, this is one I've read before, and it's kicked my rear end, and I've thought, Lord, I have no idea what that means. And I think a few weeks ago, the Lord gave me some insight to what verse 26 actually means. So I'm going to linger a little longer on this first one. Have no fear of them, grace for you. Have no fear of them, Christians. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Guys, the Lord is not saying, Jesus is not saying nothing is covered. He's not saying nothing is hidden. He's saying there are things that are covered and hidden. What is he implying? There are some things that are real, but you can't see them right now. One day you will see them. I read this, it occurs to me, what the Lord is calling for is faith. He's calling for faith. So we could pause right there and say, hey, everybody, listen, persecution's coming. Just know that there's some hidden things that you don't know yet. That ought to bolster you. Now let's move on to what he says in verse 28. Let's, let's go over there and talk about not fearing the people who can only kill the body. I think we need to pause a minute. So if I were to give you five minutes and say, what comes to your mind, write this down, what is currently hidden? It's real, but you can't currently see it. But one day it will be uncovered and revealed. It will be made known. You can't see it now, but it's real. And Jesus is saying, you need to have faith in these things. What comes to your mind? What is? I looked at that a few weeks ago. thought I was going to preach two weeks ago. And I'm typing along, and I came up with a list of about 14, 15 things. And then it occurred to me, Jeff, if you try to go through 14, 15 things, you're never going to finish this message. So I narrowed it down to seven. You said, Jeff, we only have four on our handout. I understand that, but I'm going to briefly hit seven. Everybody listen. What is currently hidden that is real that one day will be made known? So many things. I just had to make my mind stop. I want to offer to you, number one, who are the true Christians? You say, Jeff, who are the true Christians at Graceview this morning as you're looking around this room? I like know most of your names. I know something of your lives. So Jeff, who here's, guys, I cannot tell you who the true Christians are. I can't tell you who is the real wheat and who is the fake and the phony and the tares among the wheat. And there are some who may know they are fake and phony and just pretending for the sake of someone else or to put off an image. But there are others who no doubt think they are trusting Jesus, but internally they're actually trusting something in themselves or their church attendance or their giving or their Bible reading. And they're going to get rudely awakened and we're going to be shocked. Like, we're so-and-so. They were never a Christian. Right now, it's hidden. Who are the true Christians? We don't know. One day we will know. Oh, these are the true. Here's another one. The entire spirit realm. We could just stop right here, dig in, and we could probably spook ourselves out. Do you guys understand that right now there is a hidden world that is in this room right now? There are angels. You say, Jeff, do you really think? I guarantee you there are angels. You say, you think there's demons? I hope not. I've prayed. 
I pray every Sunday that the Lord would not let them come. And I start with this platform. Lord, would you remove them from here? Would you move it from there? I go back to the coffee house, Chris's, and then I go down this side of the wing, and then I go this way in our offices. And I don't know why I do it that way. And I actually haven't been praying for the student center as much because we don't have Sunday school going on right now. I go back here to the White House and the property all around. I start with my own house. It's real. There are angelic beings. I don't know how big they are. I don't know if they're like sticking through the roof. But this room, you say, how do you know? Because we apparently have angels assigned to us. And all the Christians here, our angels are here. What I'm telling you, if you could see all that's going on, you would be driving home today. And it may just be randomly on the side of a road. There is an evil demonic force. Or you may see a person and there's like a, several of them around there. Over here's a group of people and there's like lots of them around there. And it's like the person in the cubicle beside you. And some of you are like, I believe that. I think she really does, or I'm confident he has a demonic force. This is real. We just don't see it. Not in your handout, but I'll offer a couple to you right quick. All the ways that God protects us. Our mind, you know where we go? We immediately go to when we're driving down the road. God's protecting us. How many times... That car coming this way has a mechanical problem. They're going to fly off the road in a minute. They're going to blow a tire and it's going to veer over. But it's not going to hit us. It hasn't so far. Why? God was protecting. We think about a virus and, man, it may be floating through the air and it gets caught up in your nasal hair and you sneeze. And how did that happen? God was protecting. How often is this what's happening? How often is God providing? So he's protecting physically. He's protecting spiritually and holding things. We don't even know all the ways, all the ways that God has provided, that we're just assuming God's providing that and that and that. And he's causing that person to be a blessing to this person who's a blessing to them who's a blessing to us. And we don't even know all the dominoes that made that come our way. We just, all we know is, hey, I was born in America. And man, we have it well over here. God is providing and protecting in ways that we are totally clueless about. This may be on your handout. What's hidden that will be known? I hope this is encouraging to all of you who try to be evangelistic and make disciples. Write this down. Just how plentiful the harvest of your labor will be. That's hidden right now. How plentiful the harvest of your labor. Here comes persecution. Jesus saying, don't fear It's yet to be revealed what's going to come out of your life and out of your labor. You know who I thought of? I thought of the Apostle Paul. How much fruit has come out of the Apostle Paul's life? You say, yeah, it's a lot. You cannot quantify it yet. We can't close the book on the Apostle Paul's life. You say, sure we can. He died 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago. You can't close the book. People keep reading what he wrote. People keep getting saved. People keep growing in their spiritual walk and strengthening and making disciples using his material. The book is not closed on the Apostle Paul. The book is not closed on your life yet. So do not fear. Not on your handout, but I'll throw it out. The current version of heaven is hidden. It's real. The current version of hell, there are people right now in torment screaming their head off. It is real, but it's hidden. The future version of heaven, the future version of the lake of fire that will be worse than hell. The future version of heaven will be greater than the current version of heaven. We're going to be there and we're going to apparently add something to it. But it's hidden. Write this one down. A fuller tapestry of God's purpose. All of his purposes is hidden. 
I want you to go home when you get a chance sometime this week, and I want you to just think if there was a huge tapestry in all of creation, all of creation, the whole universe, all the thousands of years, the 10,000 years of history thus far and on into the future, it's all going to make a tapestry that is going to unfold and reveal why God does certain things. But let's just be honest. Right now, there's some gaps. Right there, it's like, God, why do you do that? And Lord, why don't you do something about that? Lord, why are they getting away with that? Lord, look at this person over here. They've done so much good. They just continue to struggle. Why not just more good things come their way? I've got a lot of questions. There are a lot of gaps in this tapestry. Here's what I know. The Lord's saying, listen, don't fear persecution because there's some things that are hidden that are going to be made known. Just hang in there. And no doubt the greatest is the last one. What's hidden? The glory of God's attributes totally unfiltered. I think of Paul telling the Ephesians, he prays, Lord, please, show them how much you love them. We say, yeah, God loves us. Guys, we have no clue how loving God is. Lord, show them how powerful. We have no clue how powerful. Lord, show them how big and how strong, how majestic, how holy. We say these things and we believe them. I really do believe them, but I really don't know what I'm talking about. Why? It is hidden. But one day, it's going to be uncovered. I'm telling you guys, within a second, when you go into the next life and you see God, you're going to say, wow, you're powerful. <laughs> and you are beautiful. Man, I had no, no clue. And now it's finally uncovered. What's Jesus' point? Everything is on schedule, even when you're being persecuted for being like Christ and doing his work. Everything's right on schedule. So don't fear them. He's got it all under control. Number two. Letter B, maybe number two, I forget how we did it in the handout. Why should we not fear? Not only because Christ's followers, I forgot to say the heading there, because Christ's followers will be vindicated. Number two, that was in verse 26. So secondly, it comes out of verse 28. Why not fear? Because Christ's enemies can only kill the body. Verse 28. So we're theming. We're not going literally verse by verse by verse. We're going more themes, and then we'll come back, and Lord willing, cover all the passages. Skip down. We just saw verse 28, so have no fear of them. Now look at verse, I'm sorry, verse 26. Have no fear of them, because what's covered will be uncovered. Now look at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. I don't have to say a whole lot about that, right? Just don't fear them, because all they can do is kill, but yeah, they can kill the body. Yep, they can kill the body. But mark this down. Once, once they've killed the body, that's it. That's all they can do. But what if they, like, kick us after we're dead? I promise you won't care. What if they spit on us? You won't care. What if they, like, give me a bad name after they hung me or cut my head off? You won't care. I'm telling What Christ is saying, and by the way, don't, we, we, we think about the physical world all the time. Let me give you five words. Hot, cold, hungry, tired, sick. You let us get hot, we, it's hard to think about anything. It's just so hot. Oh, I'm just so hot. You let us get, it dominates. Let us get hungry, we can put it off for a little bit, but it just keeps coming back around. Man, I'm hungry. You let us get hungry, I'm just so tired. I'm telling you what. I quarantined for 16 days. The first week, I was well aware that I was sick. 
I was aware. It's like, man, I just feel sick. I just have like, it hit me the worst in our family. It's like, I just don't feel good. What is going on here? We are dominated by the physical world. What Christ is saying in verse 28, Christians, listen. Listen, hey, there's something above the physical world. It's the spiritual world. That's where you need to focus. Yes, they can kill your body, but listen, Christian, they cannot touch or damage in any way the real you, the true self, your true self. Even if they hurt this version of your body, he's going to give you a glorified version of your body, and they cannot touch your soul or your spirit. Write this down. For a Christian, and, and I know this sounds cliche, but for a Christian, death really isn't final. Death literally just starts and begins something that is much greater than this world. Guys, this world cannot compare to the next world. It can't compare. Nothing in this life compares to the next life other than opportunity. There's opportunity in this life that is not in the next life. Outside of that, everything in the next life is better. I wrote every now and then, I, so I have these notes, right? I type my notes and I, I highlight everything, which means you highlight nothing. I understand that, but that's what I do. Forgive me. Mind your own business. Every now and then, though, I'll write little handwritten things after I've already typed and printed and all of that. So this, I, I wrote this, I think, Thursday night after I printed. My fever was two weeks ago on Friday. I started having some symptoms on a Wednesday, 18 days ago. My last fever was 16 days ago. I was diagnosed on the Saturday after that Friday. Somewhere in there, before I knew that I had COVID, I wrote these words. This literally should be our mindset. And the reason I think my mind kept going there is I was repeatedly praying for a man who used to come to our church uh, who was on a ventilator with COVID. I just kept, he just kept coming in my mind. And I thought, if we... This is before I knew I had it. If we contract COVID and must head to the hospital, let's just say it, it really regresses and we decline. Our attitude to our family, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm saying? You're like, you're like getting ready. They're coming to pick you up or you're being driven over and their family's wearing masks and you're going to have to be dropped at the door because you're not allowed to go in. Then what should be the attitude, the last exchange with the family, not knowing what could happen? I wrote, if we contract this virus and we must head to the hospital, our attitude to our family should be this. Hey, listen, if I end up on a ventilator and I slip into a coma and I just keep declining and I never come out of it and you have to make a tough call, just know that I love you and I'll see you soon. That's it. You say, Jeff, you're an idiot. I'm telling you, that should be our attitude. Hey, if I die, I die. I love you. I'll see you real soon. And oh, by the way, don't feel sorry for me. You might feel sorry for me if I'm on the, on the ventilator. But once I'm out of here, there is no, I'm not in sorrow anymore. Don't feel sorry for me. You might feel sorry for yourselves. Maybe you talk about remarriage and all that stuff and encouragement and finances. If you can have the energy, but I'm telling you, the main thing should be, if I die, I'll see you soon. You're a Christian, right? Everybody's a Christian. Tell me again. Right before they wheel me in, tell me again. Why are you going to heaven? Okay, let's do it. And if I die, I die. This life is nothing compared to the next. Third thought here comes out of verses 29 to 31. Do not fear. Why? Because God knows our situation and cares. So don't fear. 
God knows our situation. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So without going into too much math, I know I've been up here a while, right? So watch. A penny in that day, and they had several times, several ways apparently they used a penny, but this particular word here, our study Bible or your ESV note there at the bottom tells you that this is a Greek Assyrian, which was a Roman copper coin, equal to one-sixteenth of a day laborer's typical daily wage. So what I tried to do in my mind is, rather than trying to figure out how much that was worth in their day, I just tried to take it and put it in our day. Okay, in our day... A day laborer would probably work about eight hours and got to our minimum wage is seven dollars and something. Let's round it up to eight. Eight hours times eight dollars, sixty-four dollars. This coin is worth one sixteenth of that. So this coin is worth four, roughly four dollars. I'm just using it's not accurate, but just kind of give us a ballpark figure. So you can buy two of these sparrows, these little birds, for roughly around say four dollars in our terms. In fact, Luke, Jesus on another occasion says. Can you not buy five sparrows for two pennies? So that tells me something else. Not only is two of them worth about four bucks, that tells me one's worth about two bucks, but if you can buy five for two coins, what that tells me is they're so inexpensive and so cheap that if you buy four for a couple bucks each, they'll throw the fifth one in for free. So what's the point? They're insignificant. They don't matter. Let's just call it what it is. I'll see a whole flock of birds sometimes land over here in this little section out in the front lawn. I'll see a whole flock of birds fly. I don't think about any one of them. I may think about them. I don't think about any one of them. They're nothing. They're so insignificant. Do you know there are birds that have lived in part of this world that they'll never be seen by another human? They don't matter. Except to God. Oh, they matter. They do not fall to the ground. Not... He talks about two, but really he's wanting to talk about one. They're so insignificant, you can get two of them for a penny. But one of them cannot fall to the ground, but that God the Father, and then he stops his sentence. I think he doesn't finish the sentence. He doesn't give a complete thought. He leaves it open-ended. Am I wrong in this? Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? What does that even mean, apart from your father? Apart from our father, what? Where does your mind go? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's blank. Care. I heard the word care. Knowledge. His presence. Could we even say his consent? It's not in the text, but I I think the Lord is intentionally leaving it open there. Write this down. He's talking about sparrows, the insignificance of sparrows, but God cares about sparrows. And then he switches and talks about hairs on people's heads. Here's what that tells me. These, ladies and gentlemen, listen, do not fear persecutors when they come. Why? These verses are literal. God knows every sparrow that falls. Let me pause. The word fall in verse 29, do you know that some commentators who do their own translation of a passage use that Greek word to not just say fall, it has been translated light, land, hop. A sparrow cannot even, you say, well, it fell on the ground, apparently it died or it got injured and had to like shake itself off and then try to fly again and God knew it or maybe its wing got hurt and God watched that. Some would say it can't, no bird, not even one little sparrow can like light on the ground, land on the ground, hop on, like 
I've seen birds out there. I've seen them out here. I think what he's saying is God is saying every little hop of every little bird. I know everything that's happening. I know it all. I know the hairs on your head. Oh, yeah, you know how many hairs. He knows the number. You understand that's a whole different ball game. Who cares about, some of you are like, I care. I don't have a lot. I like wish I had more. The point is, I probably got about 30 hairs right there. Whoever thinks to contemplate, wonder how many that, wonder how many I've got. The Lord's point here is that God doesn't just know what happens to every person. He knows what happens to every hair. They are literally numbered. That one, has a, that one has a number and that one has a number. If one comes out, that was number whatever. And the Lord knows the number. You say, there is no possible way that the Lord could number the hairs of seven and a half billion people. You're dreaming. You don't know God. When we're talking about the knowledge of God, what Jesus is trying to say, everything happens under his watch. Now going back to my note these verses are literal, and they show that God is aware of and cares about. And can I even say he works through even the smallest detail? That's the point of the passage. The Father knows and cares and is working in even the most insignificant thing. Do y'all know that I've actually talked with some Christians? And if this is you, change your theology today. What I'm about to say, if this is you, change your theology. There are some Christians who have a belief that God, yes, he created the universe. And yes, he put life in that one solar system and on this planet called Earth. And yes, he set up some systems to run. But once he wound it up, then God kind of put it over there and it's running itself. And God doesn't really care about details like birds hopping on the ground or how a bird will get fed or how a leaf will fall off of a tree or that little thing or this little thing in your life. Guys, if you believe that, wake up and learn that God knows, cares, and is working in every little detail, even to down to the number of the hairs on your head. God cares about that. He's working in it. So I look at this, apart from your father. It doesn't happen apart from your father. What's the point there? Apart from our father's knowledge, his presence. I believe it. I'm going to go further. This is my theology, and it's not in the text, but I believe it's in the Bible. Nothing happens to you apart from God's will. You say, what about persecution? God knows about it. No, it's in God's will. You say, Jeff, how could that possibly? Yeah, that whole tapestry thing. I can't explain it. One day it'll be made full or known to us. God knows what happens to each one of us. Animals matter. That's in the text. Animals matter to God. People matter more. And oh, by the way, out of the seven and a half billion people, God's messengers and ambassadors and servants, his disciples, they matter most. And so if that's you and you get persecuted, you say, Jeff, what's the point of this whole passage? There's no such thing as luck in our life. I, I'm not going to condemn you and don't you condemn me if I say, so, hey man, good luck. I know we say that. Y'all know that there is no such thing as any luck. Proverbs 16.33 says, even the lot, the casting of lots. Talked about roulette a while ago. I don't play roulette. If I did, 
whether I won or lost, would literally be in the control and sovereignty of God. The very lot is controlled by God. Nothing happens by chance. We don't get, have lucky or unlucky circumstances. It is all covered. Write this down. Persecution. Here's Christ's point. Persecution. Don't fear them. Why? Persecution can never befall us without God knowing it. True. Approving it. True. Allowing it. Yes. Willing it. It can't happen. That's what Christ is trying to say. So don't fear. And then our next response, and we'll be brief on this one. So how do we respond to these additional responses to persecution? Don't fear them. Why? Because there's stuff that's covered that you don't yet see. Don't fear them. Why? They can only kill the body. Number three, don't, kill, don't, don't, don't fear them. Why? Because God knows all about the situation. Everything's under his control. Everything's on schedule. And our second response is also found in verse 28. And you see it already. Fear God. How should we respond when persecution comes? Fear God. God is the only person who fits verse 28b's description. Verse 28b says, Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So I'm going to talk quickly here, okay? God alone has the power to destroy bodies and souls. I hope you noticed with me that Jesus talks about hell as an actual place. It's an actual place where the whole person is tormented. I hope no one reads this and says, okay, it talks about the Father. Apparently that's who Jesus is talking about. Fear him who can destroy both. Okay, they can kill the body. They, can't, they don't get credit for destroying the body. He says destroy soul and body. So apparently those who go to hell are annihilated. Guys, don't read that into the text. When we get to chapter 25, we're going to learn that Jesus is going to tell us these people are put in everlasting punishment. Somebody's in there if there's punishment taking place. It is not annihilation. So Jeff, is Jesus' point then that we need to be afraid of God? Is that what he's saying in verse 28? Don't fear them. Fear him. Be afraid of him. He may send you to hell. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. We are not afraid that he's going to send us to hell. Several weeks ago when we had communion, I remember preaching out of Romans chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Have it. Permanent. Can't lose it. Christian, you have peace. If you're a Christian, you have peace with God. Can never be taken away. So what's this being afraid of? Are we afraid that he may take our salvation away? No, listen to me. He can never take your salvation away. He will never take your salvation away. Our eternal life is built on a one-sided covenant, and God does the saving. All we do is the receiving. Now, I will admit to you that that whole covenant thing is only as strong as the truthfulness and veracity of the person who makes that covenant. So our eternity is 100% riding not only on this covenant, but on is he ever going to change? God doesn't change. Can he be trusted? Oh, he always tells the truth. So our fear is not God's going to take our salvation. So what is this fear? It's not that we're afraid of God, it's that we have a reverential fear and awe of him as a person. I'm going to have you write it in a moment, but I want you to hear it first, all the way through, and then I'll have you write it, and once you do, you'll need to write it quickly, because then we'll go quickly into the third response to persecution. 
say, Jeff, what is this fear of God? Can I propose to you it's this? Everybody listen. Fear of God is an awareness that God is. Hang with me. Fear of God. This is what Jesus says. Don't fear them. Fear him. He can destroy soul and body in hell. He is completely sovereign. Fear of God is that I am aware and you live with an awareness that God is and that he is infinitely great, infinitely powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, infinitely wise, infinitely holy, completely separate from sin. What is the awareness and the fear of God? He is infinitely great, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful. I better respect this person. Infinitely holy, different from me, totally righteous. And he's always watching, always watching. That's the fear of God. Don't fear them, fear him. I think it was Tony Evans on one of the videos that some of our men we watched four years ago almost who likened it, you're riding down the road and you see a highway patrol come behind you from the on-ramp and you know that he's right behind you. That affects how you drive. Like, you see him like, oh, he's watching. You drive different. When you're persecuted, when you're aware, I'm telling you guys, this reverential awe of God will defeat, dispel fear of man. And then lastly this morning, what is the proper response? Not only don't fear them, but fear him. And then number three, kind of putting two thoughts together. Identify with Jesus. What about persecution? Identify with Jesus. And oh, by the way, speak up. Identify with Christ and speak up. That's the response to persecution. You say, Jeff, isn't this what actually causes persecution in the first place? Yes, it is, but don't be deterred. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark. Hey, Christians, grace for you, listen. Hang, hang in here with me. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Read it again. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. You know what Jesus is saying? He just said, it's coming. Persecution's coming. Don't be afraid of them. Proclaim what I tell you. You know what he's saying? Don't let fear cripple us from publicly proclaiming and declaring all the things that the Lord teaches us. When the Lord teaches you something, then go share it and declare it. He teaches to you privately first, and then once that's done, go take it out and share it. Don't always be teaching somebody else's material. You may teach someone else's material, but it ought to be flavored with your firsthand material that you're receiving from the Lord in the private place. Christians, if you're a Christian, you should be a lifelong learner. You don't ever retire. Well, I, I used to study a lot, and I just don't do that. There are so many ways now. You say, I can't see very well. There are ways to keep on studying. You need to find them. Be a lifelong learner. You know what Christ is saying? Everybody listen. Every Christian, a disciple. Every Christian, a disciple maker. Every Christian, a disciple, you and the Lord, and you and the Lord in prayer, and then every Christian, a disciple maker. Keep on growing. Keep on teaching. Don't let fear cripple you. Look at, um, it'll be on the screen, Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Don't be crippled. Fear of man doesn't cripple our legs. It cripples our vocal cords. It causes us to not say what we know. We don't speak up. Last thought in verse 27 before I move quickly to verse 32, 33. Look at it one more time. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. William Barclay writes the following. Everybody with me? Listen to what Barclay writes. Don't be fooled by the word preacher. It just means Christians who witness. Don't, don't make it think of just somebody that does what I do. Barclay writes the following. First, the preacher, can I say the Christian, must listen. Listen. First, hey, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What I tell you in the dark, what you hear whispered. Barclay says, first, the preacher must listen. He must be in the secret place with Christ so that in the dark hours Christ may speak to him and that in the loneliness Christ may whisper in his ear. Barclay says, no man can speak for Christ unless he has been spoken to by Christ. See, I do. You've got to be, you got to get it from him first. And then, but that's the order. Go get alone with the Lord. On your handout, I'm putting it this way. It's a note that we've used many, many times in various forms, but it bears repeating. Guys, the best things from the Lord don't come on a Sunday morning listening to Jeff Bartlett preach. The best things from the Lord often come in solitude and in stillness and in silence. Just you and your Bible open and letting God talk to you and you spending time in prayer. And sometimes you're talking and sometimes you're just sitting there. And sometimes you're just literally like, Lord, what do you want to tell me? This is after you've closed your Bible or before you've opened your Bible. Lord, do you want to tell me anything? Learn what God sounds like. Do you do that? I know I've been up here a long time. This is important. Jeff, we can't meet together. And Jeff, we can't socialize. And we can't minister like normal. What are the fundamentals? This is the fundamental. You getting alone with God and getting still and getting quiet. I look at that word whisper and it tells me two things have to be true for a whisper. It's got to be quiet. Somebody back there could be whispering. I can't hear you. It's got to be quiet and it's also you got to be close. The reason I can't hear somebody far away is because we're not close. You understand? Get quiet. Get close to the Lord and he starts whispering. When he does, go tell it. Verse 32, 33, look at it. So everyone who acknowledges me, so what's the proper response? Tell what the Lord teaches you, and then identify with him. Verse 32, 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Would you hold your spot there? Last place we're going to go, Romans 10. Got your Bible? You remember this? These two verses, they're very familiar to us. Romans 10, just to kind of balance, to kind of show what does this mean in Matthew 10? Well, it means what it means. That's what it means. And I don't want to water it down. So, Jeff, what does the Bible say? In Romans chapter 10, there's two ways of salvation proposed. One is, can you keep the law perfectly? If you can, you can go to heaven. Uh, sorry, you've already blown it, so don't try it. The other is this word of faith. This word of faith that's been preached to in the book of Romans that's a faith. It's in, you, you know it if you've read this far in the book. You know 
what the word of faith is. It means put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that verse 9, listen to what the Bible says. Because, hey guys, listen. Some of us need this this morning. Because if you confess with your mouth, that means your mouth, tongue, lips, vocal cords. Like you got to actually talk. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. Your heart doesn't mean your heart muscle. It means your whole core inner person. The soul and the spirit brought together, the whole heart. Your heart, the real you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means publicly in front of people, and believe in your heart that God raised, I believe, I am trusting, I am relying, I am depending. I know that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. For with the heart, the inner core person, one believes. What happens when we believe? You're justified, God declares you righteous. But don't discount the second part of verse 10. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus says in verse 32, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is like serious business. D.A. Carson writes the following. Actually, let me give you my last note. Let me do that first. We know salvation comes by faith, but those who have true faith are to use their mouth to confess before other people publicly that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Lord. And then they are to identify themselves not only as ones who know some information. Oh, Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. He's the Son of God and He's the Lord. It goes beyond that. You actually identify yourself as He is your Lord and your Savior. Do it publicly. You say, I'm a Christian. Have you done this? Have you done this publicly? D.A. Carson writes, I hope you'll hear this. He says, a necessary criterion for being a disciple of Jesus is to acknowledge him publicly. This will vary, let's be honest. He says, it's a criterion. You must, to be a disciple, you must acknowledge him publicly. He says, this will vary in boldness, fluency, wisdom, sensitivity, and frequency from believer to believer. It will vary. But consistently to disown Christ is to be disowned by Christ. Hey, Jeff, what about Peter? Yeah, I know. In a moment of weakness, Peter denied three times that he knew Jesus. So I guess that's where his allegiance was. No, 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 guys. Y'all know the rest of the story. His allegiance was to Jesus. He got caught in a weak moment. So does that mean Peter's in hell? No. He denied him on that night. Three days later, he's restored. He spends the rest of his life giving a bold witness. He's accused of being one of the ones who turned the world upside down for Jesus. He died a martyr's death requesting, can I at least be crucified upside down? I don't deserve to be crucified right side up like Jesus. This man blew it in a moment of weakness, but his life told a whole different story. He loved the Lord Jesus. He identified with the Lord Jesus. He was beaten and imprisoned and ultimately martyred for the cause and for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just ask you a base question? Y'all know one of the main ways? Y'all know the initial way, the initial way we align ourselves 
and profess and confess and acknowledge Jesus? Y'all know the the initial way, right? Y'all know this. You get baptized. You identify with Christ by being, you identify with his death and his burial and his resurrection. I love how Mike does our baptisms. We were going to have some going because I know that we have some that want to be baptized before COVID hit. And we need to research that again. And how can we do this? And so one of the things that Mike will ask is, 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 do you acknowledge Jesus Christ is the Lord? Do you acknowledge that he's your Lord? And I think you even have them. They even say, Jesus is Lord. And they will answer that, yes, because baptism is based upon your public profession of faith in Jesus as Lord. That's like the first thing. Have you done that? You say, Jeff, I've done that. What Christ is telling us in verse 32 and 33, and here's where I close. Everybody listen. You, here's Jesus talking. You will want to be associated with me when I judge you before the Father. You will want to be associated with me. But I will only associate with those who first associate with me publicly in this life. There are three ways people deny Christ. Some deny him verbally with their words. Some deny him with a written word or typed out word. A lot lot of that going on in our country. You know how most people deny Christ? Silence. They just don't say anything. To not acknowledge Jesus is to deny. You say, Jeff, I'm, I'm privately trusting Christ. And it's just between me and him. I'm not denying him. I'm trusting him. To not acknowledge him is to deny him. He's going to deny you at the judgment. That should ring true to any true Christian. So I close with this. Have you ever denied the Lord with your words? Somebody in here has. You're like, in a, man, it was pressure packed. And you, you took an out. You wimped out. Beg God to forgive you and the next time. Be bold. But I want to ask you mainly, have you ever just used silence? You've denied the Lord by your silence. If you're sitting there right now saying, nope, that's not me. I've not denied the Lord with my verbal words, my written words, or by silence. Then I will ask you, when? When? Where? To who did you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior with your mouth? When? When was that? Where was that? Who were the people that heard you say that? If you're sitting there drawing a blank, you've got a problem. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? In a moment, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I know I've preached a long time, but just before I pray, and we'll be dismissed, I want us to review. Our review is brief, but can we do this? If you publicly identify with Jesus... Will you do that if you publicly? I'm going to go tell you both sides. Let's just be honest. If you publicly identify with Jesus, and if you become like him, and if you take part in evangelism, I mean like really go the whole way, you not only have faith in the Lord and you're growing in your walk, you like start bringing up faith conversations where you don't just talk about God. You talk about Jesus and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ's death. Ladies and gentlemen, if you partake in evangelism or if you partake in pioneer missions, you will be persecuted. 
you will be persecuted. So, be wise. Be wise. Be innocent. Be prepared to endure. Christians, I hope you're still listening. I hope you're hearing this and saying, I need to be wise. I don't need to stir up persecution. I need to be innocent. I need to make sure that if I'm persecuted, it is for righteousness sake and not me inserting myself and my agenda. I need to be wise and innocent. But are you prepared to endure for the Lord? Listen, do not fear. Jeff, fear is natural in the face of persecution. Oh, I, I know that. And I need to be reminded of my own words and of this passage. But here's what I know. Fear can be dispelled two ways. Number one, fear God. When we fear God, it cripples and paralyzes the fear of man rather than the other way around. Have fear of God and then secondly, rehearse what Jesus has taught us in this passage. Remember what he taught us. This world, this life, What you think you see does not tell the whole story. Everything's on schedule, even when you're being persecuted. Remember what Jesus says. They can only kill the body. After they've done that, that's it. And it just ushers you to heaven, to God. Don't fear them. Don't fear them. Why? Because God knows and allows everything that happens to you. It passes Him beforehand. i got to ask. Are you prepared to stand for Christ no matter what? Strength to do that comes in the quiet place of silence, solitude, and stillness. I want to encourage you, go there. Go there daily. In these strange times, don't miss a day. That's where the strength to withstand persecution and to be faithful and declaring and teaching and identifying with Christ, it comes from the prayer closet and the private time with Christ. Would you stand with us this morning? I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me all my days. I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head Oh, I will sing Of the goodness of God And all my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God Cause your goodness Your goodness is running after it's running after me your goodness is running after it's running after me with my life laid down i'm surrendered now i give you everything your good 
Jesus is running after, is running after me. All my life, all my life, you have been faithful, and all my life, you have been so, so good with every breath. the goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Your goodness to us is so undeniable. You are so, so good. Every breath is a gift from you. The ability to think and to see and to hear Lord, our circulatory, digestive system, our nervous system, our skeletal system, all of it, our immune system. Lord, you've, you've been so, so good. Lord, thank you that you care so much about each one of us, God. You have the very hairs of our head numbered. You know what tomorrow has. You know what yesterday held for us. You know what today holds. You're completely in control. Lord, thank you that in this moment, I dare say most, if not all of us, have confidence to withstand persecution and to go the course and to endure. But Lord, if they separate us from our Bibles, and Lord, they try to brainwash us and beat us down, and Lord, if our people tune into social media and cut themselves off from your word, Lord, then what they have right now is going to be lost. Before tomorrow comes, it'll be lost. Lord, help us to turn the TV off to cut off the naysayers and Lord tune into you and your Holy Spirit God use us to further your kingdom and if need be let persecution come and purify your church and let people really come into the kingdom who are willing to pay the price because you are a great savior and you give away salvation for free and we love you and we want to tell others about you at all costs Lord do a work in us Father, be glorified. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And let Grace View and our people be part of furthering your work. You're good. You're sovereign. You're the Almighty. You're the one true God. And we owe our lives to you. Let us live like it. Let us live with an awareness of you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. Have a wonderful Sunday and a wonderful week.